Volume 1, Chapter 4, Part 2 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by François-Pierre-Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 4, Part 2. Canute died in 1035, leaving three sons, Harold and Swain, born of a Danish mother, and Hardy Canute, son of Princess Emma. He had divided his states among his children, leaving England to Harold, Denmark to Hardy Canute, and Norway to Swain. These two last princes already, no doubt, exercised some authority in their dominions, for both were in the north when their father died. But England was wont to have a voice in questions of succession, and Canute left behind him a powerful favourite, who was inclined to further the interests of Hardy Canute. This favourite was Earl Godwin, a nobleman of Saxon extraction, formerly but a simple herdsman in the county of Warwick. During the struggle between Edmund and Canute, a Danish chieftain named Ulf had lost his way in a forest in the evening after a battle. He had walked in vain all night when, at daybreak, he met a young countryman who was driving a herd of cattle. "'What is your name?' asked the Dane. "'I am Godwin, son of Ulforth,' said the young man, "'and you are a Danish soldier.' The warrior hesitated. "'It is true,' he said at length. "'But could you tell me the way to my countrymen's ships on the sea coast?' Godwin shook his head. "'He is a very foolish Dane,' he said, "'who expects a favour from a Saxon.' And he hurried on his cattle. Ulf insisted. "'There are many of my countrymen close to us,' replied the herdsman. "'They would spare neither me nor you if they should meet us.' The chieftain silently offered him the heavy golden ring which he wore on his finger. Godwin looked at him. "'I will accept nothing from you,' he said, "'but I will try and show you the way.' They came to Godwin's hut. He invited the Dane in. "'Remember,' said the herdsman's father to the Dane, "'that he is my only son, and that he sacrifices his safety for you.' Try and find employment for him at your king's court. Ulf promised to do so, and kept his word. Canute took a fancy to the young Saxon, who had attained the rank of governor of a province when the king died. He immediately declared himself in favour of the son of Emma, who was not so thoroughly Danish as his brothers. Leofric, governor of Mercia, took up the cause of Harold, in common with all the northern chiefs. The town of London followed their example. War was about to break out, but the Wittenagemot convoked at Oxford allotted all the provinces north of the Thames to Harold, and those on the south to Hardy Canute. While Queen Emma and Godwin were thus striving to secure the power for the young king of Denmark, the latter lingered in his northern possessions, and had not yet set his foot in England. His Norman brothers, sons of Ethelred and Emma, had been more prompt. Scarcely had the news of the death of Canute reached Normandy, when the elder of the two princes, Edward, 
who subsequently became Edward the Confessor, landed at Southampton with a few ships. But Queen Emma's natural affection was confined to her son by Canute. She raised the country against her eldest child, who was obliged to retire precipitately. His ill success did not discourage his brother Alfred, and, the following year, 1037, the two princes received a letter, coming, it was said, from their mother, urging them to come secretly to England, where the people were anxious to have a king of Saxon origin to rule over them. Alfred immediately embarked for England, followed by some troops from Normandy and Boulogne. He landed in the neighbourhood of Herne Bay. Godwin had come to meet him and appeared friendly, but, either from premeditated treason or from annoyance at seeing the strangers who accompanied the prince, Godwin altered his mind and took Alfred to Guildford, lodging the Normans in the houses of that town. In the dead of night, while the little band of soldiers were asleep, Harold's soldiers surrounded Guildford, and the Normans were made prisoners, Godwin meanwhile not appearing on the scene to defend them, and a fearful massacre took place at daylight. Six hundred men, it is said, were slaughtered in cold blood, and the unhappy Alfred was dragged to London, from whence Harold sent him, bound, hand and foot, to the Isle of Ely. He appeared before a Danish council of war, and was condemned to have his eyes put out, as a disturber of the public peace. He died a few days afterwards. Harold soon sent Queen Emma into exile, and Godwin having sworn allegiance to him, he was proclaimed king of all England, not, however, without some dissatisfaction on the part of the Saxons. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Ethelnoth, who was a Saxon, refused to crown him. Depositing on the altar the royal emblems, he exclaimed, I will not give them to you, I do not forbid you to take them, but I refuse to bestow my benediction upon you, and no bishop shall consecrate your throne. It is said that, thereupon, Harold seized the crown and placed it upon his head with his own hands. Some chroniclers state that he subsequently found favour with the archbishop, but the Dane was more than half pagan, he had abandoned the Christian church. When divine service was being celebrated, when the bells were ringing and the priests were mounting the altars, he would let loose his dogs and start for the forest to enjoy the pleasure of hunting or racing, a fondness for which pastimes won him the name of Harefoot. He died in 1040, at the time when his brother, Hardy Canute, had just repaired to Flanders, where Queen Emma had taken refuge to consult her preparatory to attempting an invasion of England. Soon afterwards, an embassy of Danish chieftains and English counts came unsolicited and offered him his brother's throne. He thereupon came to England with his mother. Hardy Canute, like his predecessors, was thoroughly Danish by nature. He gave himself up to the pleasures of the table, surrounding himself at the same time by the chieftains whom he had brought over with him from the north, despising and oppressing the Saxons, from whom he still exacted Danegelt, as in the old times of the invasions. He had attributed his brother's misfortunes to Godwin, but the Count had been able to justify himself before a council, in spite of public opinion which condemned him. The presents which he had offered to the king had had the effect of putting an end to the prosecution. 
Hardy Canute had accepted from him a magnificent ship covered with burnished metal, ornamented with gold, and manned by eighty warriors furnished with every kind of weapon. By degrees, power had returned entirely into the hands of Godwin and Emma when, in 1042, Hardy Canute at a banquet, fell a victim to the excesses of every kind to which he was accustomed. The Saxon Earl had resolved to deliver his country from the Danish yoke. He immediately sent for Prince Edward, who was still in Normandy, and was more a monk than a prince. The popular feeling in his favour which enabled Edward to return to England was shared and fostered by the very man to whom he attributed his brother's death. But the new king was powerless, and a stranger in the country which recalled him after an exile which he had endured during nearly the whole of his lifetime. He dissembled and accepted the hand of Edith, daughter of Godwin, a good and gentle princess who was born of Godwin as the rose is born in the midst of thorns, the chroniclers say. Edward was always cold towards her, and he manifested something more than coldness towards Queen Emma. He could not forget how she had repulsed him, and how she had failed to do anything to defend her son Alfred, even if she had not actually allured him to his ruin. He ordered her to remain within her domains, which had been greatly reduced, and refused to see her any more. The power which Edward had regained was, however, scarcely more than nominal. The great earl, as Godwin was called, had exacted the value of his services. He and his six sons held possession of nearly all the south of England. Besides this, his rival, Earl Leofric, was all-powerful in Mercia. Seward held the whole of the north, from the Humber to the frontiers of Scotland. Happily for the king, all these chieftains were opposed to each other. Edward took advantage of their rivalries, trying from time to time to redress the wrongs of the people, who were oppressed and deprived of all power. But in vain did he suppress the Danegelt. In vain did he inspire an almost superstitious veneration towards himself and his subjects by reason of the austerity of his life. The English never forgave him for the affection which he manifested towards the Normans and his preference for them, which induced him not only to surround himself with the friends of his younger days, but to lavish all the favours on them which he had at his disposal. The king's ordinary conversation was carried on in the Norman language. He dressed in Norman fashion. He raised to clerical dignities the Norman priests who had come over with him, and thus contrived to excite considerable jealousy in the people, all of which increased the influence of Godwin. An event happened which caused their animosity to break out openly. Eustace of Boulogne, the brother-in-law of King Edward, who had married the latter's sister, the Lady Goda, landed in England with a numerous suite of troops from Boulogne and Normandy. He was received in a very friendly manner by the king, and loaded with presents. He was returning home when, on arriving at Dover, some of the inhabitants resisted the action of the strangers in unceremoniously taking up their quarters in the town. Eustace's soldiers, greatly incensed, killed those who closed the gate at their approach. The whole town rose against them in consequence of this act. They were beaten and routed. 
they took refuge in Gloucester, where King Edward was staying, who ordered Earl Godwin to impose a punishment on the inhabitants of Dover. Godwin told the king to inquire into the affair. Edward, however, summoned Godwin to appear before him. The earl was in no hurry to do so. Uneasy at the king's projects, he began to raise troops throughout his dominions, and his son Harold did likewise. Godwin soon found himself at the head of a considerable force. The king summoned to his aid Leofric, Count of Mercia, and Seward, Earl of Northumbria. These two great rivals of Godwin immediately advanced with an army, but the old hatred between the Danes and the Saxons had almost worn itself out. The soldiers from the north considered themselves English as well as those from the south, and they all murmured at the idea of coming to blows. It was agreed to lay the subject before the Witanagamot, but in the meanwhile, before the meeting of the assembly, Godwin's soldiers, who were nearly all volunteers, were slowly dispersing, while the king had collected together a numerous army. When the Witenagamot began to sit, the earl and his sons were summoned to appear and establish their innocence. They hesitated, however, being unwilling to trust to the impartiality of the judges, and, in consequence of the decision which was to come in their absence, they were banished, driven from England within five days, and condemned to have all their goods confiscated. Godwin, his wife, and three of their sons sought refuge at the court of Flanders. Harold and his brother, Leofwin, fled to Ireland. Edward consigned to a convent the only persons of Godwin's family remaining in England, Queen Edith. It is not advisable, said the Norman courtiers, that she should live in luxury and with wealth at her command while her relations are suffering from such misfortunes. Delivered of the ambitious and powerful Godwin, Edward was beginning to feel himself a king in reality. He took advantage of this to surround himself with those persons only who were personally devoted to him. Among others whom he wished to see at his court was the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard, as he was called, his mother being the daughter of a tanner at Falaise. Edward was still an exile in Normandy when the Duke Robert, William's father, conceived the idea of making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to obtain forgiveness for his sins. These expeditions were of frequent occurrence among the Normans. The barons represented, however, to the Duke that it would be inexpedient to thus leave his dominions without a ruler. "'By my faith,' answered Robert, "'I will leave you no lord. I have a little bastard son who will grow up, please God. Select him in the meanwhile.' and I will appoint him my successor afterwards. The Normans did as the Duke proposed, because it suited them to do so, the Chronicle says, and all the chiefs came, one after the other, and placed their rough hands between those of the child, swearing allegiance to him. But scarcely had the Duke his father started than the murmuring began. The Normans were proud, restless, unmanageable, it was repugnant to their feelings to live under the dominion of a child and a bastard. A war soon broke out. The partisans of young William carried him off, but the King of France came to their aid. When the child had reached manhood, he soon manifested rare courage and a strong and ungovernable will, as well as that ambitious disposition 
which was destined to make the fortune of himself and his partisans. He was twenty-seven years old when he came to England in 1050 to the court of King Edward. He might almost have imagined that he was not really out of his dominions. A Norman was in command of the fleet near Dover, Norman soldiers were in possession of a fort near Canterbury, and as he advanced into the country, other Normans, priests and laymen, gathered round him. King Edward received him in a very friendly manner, and made him presents of arms, horses, dogs, and hawks. It is not known whether William was incited by any hint from Edward to claim the inheritance of this rich kingdom, which was to be without a master at the death of the king. Edward did not mention it, and the Duke could keep his secrets. He had just returned to Normandy, when Count Godwin appeared upon the coast of Kent with three ships. He had sent some emissaries to his numerous friends, and the entire population had risen in his favour. At the same time, his sons Harold and Leofwin, coming from Ireland, joined him with a small army. The father and his sons sailed round the coast, and everywhere met with followers. When they at length landed at Sandwich, nobody ventured to resist them. King Edward was in London, collecting together his warriors, who came forward very slowly. Godwin's vessels had ascended the Thames, and found themselves under the very walls of London. They soon passed the bridge and landed their troops. The king, meanwhile, did not stir. Godwin had arrived at the capital without discharging an arrow or unsheathing a sword. He sent a message to the king, in which he demanded the remission of the sentence which had been pronounced against him. Edward was aware of the desperate state of his affairs, but he was incensed at the daring of the earl and refused to listen to his demands. Several other messages were delivered. The king, at this critical moment, was still surrounded by his Norman favourites. He could not order his vessels to attack those of Godwin, as the former had been seized by the insurgents. But Edward remained inflexible. The Normans who were with him foresaw the issue of the conflict, and feared the vengeance of Godwin. They began to fly. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert, and the Bishop of London, William, mounted their horses and fought their way to the sea-coast, where they embarked. The king at length surrendered. A Wittenagamot was convoked, and the sentence of banishment pronounced against Godwin and his sons was annulled and transferred to the Normans, who were in their turn expelled from England. Queen Edith reappeared in her husband's palace. Godwin and his family regained their honours and property. The younger of the sons and one of the grandsons of the great earl were the only hostages given to the king, who confided them to the keeping of the Duke of Normandy. Sweyn, in expiation of his former sins, gave up both his titles and his wealth to perform a pilgrimage barefooted to Jerusalem. He died long before reaching the Holy Land. Peace seemed re-established in England, but the king still nourished the bitterest hatred against Godwin. The peace would probably not have been of long duration, had not the death of the Earl, which took place in 1053, put an end to their rivalry. The Norman chronicles relate that he was seated at the royal table when a servant, accidentally losing his balance, supported himself by leaning against another. There, said Godwin laughing, that is how brother helps brother.
Yes, certainly, said the king. One brother requires the help of another, and I would to God that mine were still alive. King, cried Godwin, how comes it that at the slightest remembrance of your brother you always look so fiercely at me? If I help to cause his misfortune even indirectly, may the Lord of heaven prevent my swallowing this piece of bread. At that moment, while carrying the bread to his mouth, the earl had a fit of choking and fell back, struck down by the hand of providence. He died a few days afterwards, almost at the same moment as his old rival, Seward, Count of Northumbria. The latter was ill and bedridden when he said, Lift me up that I may die standing like a soldier and not lying down like a cow. Give me my cuirass and helmet that I might die armed. It is this old Seward whom Shakespeare represents in Macbeth, uneasy in his mind before mourning the death of his son, about the situation of the fatal wounds and consoling himself amidst his grief with the thought that they had all been inflicted in front and that his son had died like a brave warrior. The son whom Seward had left was too young to succeed him in the government of his vast dominions, which were presented to Tostig, one of Godwin's sons. Harold had all the estates of his father left to him, and although very loath to do so, he gave up the command of the eastern territories, which he had hitherto held, to Elfgar, son of Leofric of Mercia. King Edward was much attached to Harold, the bravest and best of Godwin's sons, and the English people shared this affection with him. Tostig, on the contrary, soon caused himself to be detested in Northumbria. The people organised an insurrection in 1066, and he was driven from his territories. The king instructed Harold to quell the insurrection, but the latter knew his brother well, and understood the grievances of the people whom he had oppressed. He made proposals to the Northumbrians of a conference for peace, endeavouring at the same time to exonerate his brother and promising that the latter's conduct should be more worthy in future. The insurgents refused haughtily. A proud and overbearing chief is unendurable to us, they said. We have learned from our ancestors to live free or die. Harold himself conveyed the message of the Northumbrians to the king, and Morcar, son of Elfgar, was elected in place of Tostig, who took refuge at the court of Flanders. Edward was growing old, and he had no children. His devotion was becoming day by day more fervent. He thought of making a pilgrimage to Rome, but the Wittenagamot opposed it. For the first time the king thought of his nephew, Edward, son of Edmund Ironsides, who was still in Hungary, where he had been brought up. He sent for him. Edward Atheling, as he was called, immediately set out with his wife, daughter of the Emperor of Germany, and also with his three children, Edward, Margaret, and Christiana. The English people were delighted. The memory of Ironsides had remained popular, and his son was received with acclamation. But this was only by the people, for the king, who had sent for his nephew, with the evident intention of making him his heir, never saw his face. By reason of some intrigues, probably of Harold, the interview was delayed, and before it could take place the prince died in London, where he was buried in St Paul's Cathedral. Godwin's son was rapidly approaching the throne. For more than ten years, Harold's brother, Wolfoth, 
and his nephew Hiako had been in Normandy, entrusted to the care of the Duke William as Godwin's hostages. The Count conceived a desire to go and set them free. The old king tried to persuade Harold to abandon his project, either on account of his esteem for him, or because he had, as some chroniclers say, made a will in favour of the Duke of Normandy, and consequently wished to prevent Harold from making his acquaintance. "'I will not hinder you,' said the king, "'but if you go, it is not by my wish, "'for your journey will assuredly bring down some misfortune upon our country. "'I know the Duke William and his astute mind. "'He hates you, and will grant you nothing.' unless he sees some advantage for himself in doing so. The way to make him give up the hostages would be to send somebody else. Harold was young and presumptuous. He did not heed the advice of the old king, but embarked at a port in Sussex near Bosham with his companions. The wind was unfavourable, and the two little ships were dashed ashore at the mouth of the river Somme in the dominions of Guy, Count of Ponceur. According to the usage of the time, the crew were taken to the Count, who was entitled to claim them, and they were shut up in the citadel of Beaurain, dear Montreux. Harold had declared himself to be the bearer of a message from the King of England to the Duke of Normandy, and William claimed the prisoners, but the Count of Ponceur only parted with them for a ransom. Harold was taken to the Duke at Rouen. The latter received the Englishman magnificently, and at once gave up to them the hostages, only asking Harold to prolong his stay in Normandy. The Saxon consented to do so, finding ample amusement in observing the luxury and civilised customs which he met with for the first time among the Normans. The Duke William had conferred upon his guests the spurs of knighthood, and he proposed that, in order to enable them to display their prowess, they should accompany him on an expedition into Brittany. As long as the war lasted, Harold and William lived under a single tent and dined at the same table. On one occasion, after the Saxons had distinguished themselves by their warlike feats, the two chiefs were returning home together on horseback. William was speaking of his old relations with King Edward. "'When Edward and I lived like brothers under the same roof,' he said, he promised me that if ever he should become King of England, he would make me heir to his kingdom. Harold, help me to get this promise fulfilled. If by your help I should obtain the kingdom, rest assured that whatever you ask for, I will immediately grant. Harold, astounded, did not know what to answer. He stammered a few words. William was resolved to get his consent. Since you consent to serve me, you must undertake to fortify Dover Castle, he said, to construct a well there for obtaining a supply of spring water and to surrender it up to my soldiers. You must give up your sister to me, whom I will give in marriage to one of my barons, and you shall marry my daughter Adela. I also wish that when you go, you would leave one of the two hostages whom you have claimed. I will take him back to England when I go over there as king. Harold shuddered inwardly. He was at the Duke's mercy, and he agreed to all that he desired, mentally resolving not to fulfil his promises. He did not know the Norman and his far-sighted schemes. They were at Avranches, some say at Bayeux, 
and the Norman barons were convoked in a great assembly. The Saxon was there by the side of the duke. A mass book was brought and placed upon a stool covered with a golden cloth. Suddenly William exclaimed, Harold, I call upon you, before this noble assembly, to confirm on oath all that you have promised to do to help me to obtain the kingdom of England after the death of King Edward. The Englishman was again taken aback and was in great peril. He advanced slowly and swore with his hand on the book to perform the promises made to the Duke, provided that he were alive and that God should help him to do so. All the Normans cried out, May the Lord help him! Then at a sign from William the rich cloth was removed and the Saxon discovered that he had sworn upon a receptacle filled with precious relics which had been brought by order of the Duke from all the neighbouring convents. William did not detain Harold any longer. He left the country, taking his nephew with him, but his brother remained in the power of the Normans. "'Did I not warn you that I knew William?' said the old King Edward, when Harold related to him what had happened, and he added sadly, "'May none of these misfortunes happen in my lifetime?' The death of the king was destined to be the signal for England's misfortunes to recommence, and he was becoming weaker every day. Sinister reports had been circulated. Old prophecies were recalled, which threatened England with invasion and subjugation by a foreign people. The king himself, constantly occupied with his devotional practices, saw fearful visions in his dreams, and would cry out, with a vague remembrance of biblical imagery, the Lord has stretched his bow, he has unsheathed his sword, he moves and brandishes it like a warrior. His wrath shall be manifested through fire and sword. His servant shuddered at these threatening prophecies. But the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stigand, only laughed. Dreams of the sick old man, he would say. It is said that before dying, Edward designated Harold to the members of the Wittenagamot as his successor. Other chroniclers, the Norman writers, maintained on the contrary that when Harold and his relations presented themselves in the king's chamber, the latter said in a feeble whisper, You know, my thanes, that I have bequeathed my kingdom to the Duke of Normandy. Do I not see here men who have sworn to uphold his rights? Whatever the dying man may have wished, the opinion of the English chiefs was not to be mistaken. Scarcely had Edward the Confessor been buried in Westminster Abbey, which he had built in place of performing the pilgrimage to Rome, when the Wittanagemot proclaimed as a king of England Harold, the son of Godwin, and the grandson of the herdsman Ulfoth, overlooking in his favour the rights of Edgar Atheling, son of Edward Atheling, and grandson of Edward Ironsides as well as the more formidable pretensions of the Duke of Normandy. End of chapter 4, part 2